This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 21st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. If Republicans and Democrats were serious about voting rights, securing elections, and discouraging partisan games and redistricting, what would survive from the various proposals of both parties? Cato's Walter Olson makes his case for what ought to be yet another bipartisan issue that's getting bogged down in partisanship. There are a lot of things wrapped up in this. It's for Republicans. The the buzzwords are election integrity. For Democrats, the buzzwords are voting rights and protecting the vote. Uh, And both sides seem concerned about an election being stolen, specifically from them. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, you know, to the extent that both sides have serious uh, ideas about protecting, securing the intent of uh, the people who go to the polls, uh, eligible voters who are intending to cast a ballot, go to the polls and cast those ballots. What what are the most important things uh, from your perspective about trying to do that? Well, thank you for inviting me to start out on the positive because I spend a lot of time kind of blasting away at both parties for all the things they claim in this area that are just not true. On the other hand, there are some genuine and important steps that could be taken to bolster confidence uh, that would bolster it potentially on both sides, wouldn't necessarily be for partisan advantage of either side. And one of them is... uh, of course, after the votes are cast, making sure that uh, there is not a rogue effort that some state legislature is not prevailed on to try to replace the electors that the voters actually chose in that state with some other group of electors. There were attempts to do that last time, which did not succeed. There were attempts to get the vice president to pronounce things while chairing the joint session of counting electoral votes that, that were not, in fact, true. All those failed. And so one set of reforms is to look at what might have gone wrong or nearly went wrong in some places and to tighten up the protections for the votes being reported on that electoral count day the same way that voters intended to cast them. Now, there's a second set of protections, which are also valuable, also important, having to do with the casting of votes back on election day by the voters themselves. And here you have ideas that have a fair bit of bipartisan consensus, although sometimes there uh, is a partisan gap on whether or not the federal government should be prescribing these things or whether states should be marching forward towards some of these same goals. But for example, better auditing so that there can be more confidence after the fact and involvement of Uh, Things like a paper ballot record for every voter, and we're mostly up to that. That wasn't, lack of that was not a major problem last time. On the other hand, virtually everyone seems to agree that that would be helpful to finish that process of making sure there's a paper ballot backup. More bipartisan chances for ballot inspection so as to reassure people. And of course, one of the features of this last year was that a lot of audits were done in a lot of different methods and mechanisms, and by and large, they all give it a clean bill of health. They do not find any significant number of votes to be wrongly cast. Nonetheless, 
whether you are a Democrat saying, let's stop worrying so much about exaggerated claims of voter fraud, or whether you are one of the many Republicans saying there are genuine things to worry about, uh, don't dismiss election security. More of that bipartisan auditing is probably not a bad thing and maybe a good reassuring thing. So what about the characterizations that have been presented by people like Joe Biden talking about uh, laws passed in states like Georgia and Democrats who have characterized large scale changes in election law, not just about voting, but about speaking and about campaign finance rules that would be uh, changing as well? Uh, a, A lot of these seem to be uh, bear some resemblance to reality, but otherwise, I, th- I think in, on both sides, there are broadly sweeping claims that don't really get to a lot of what substantively they're talking about. Unfortunately, in the past year, we have, as a nation, listened through an incredible amount of demagogic, erroneous, you know, wildly polarizing accusations of bad faith coming from both of the main political factions, somewhat different problems with what the Democrats have made their line than what the Republicans have made their line. So let's treat them separately because it's not exact mirror images of each other. Let's start with the Republicans. And you had a Republican party, much of whose leadership has been unwilling to squarely contradict the former president when he says that the 2020 election was not honestly run and that it was stolen from him. They know he's wrong. Nearly all of them in a a place like the U.S. Senate knows that the president was wrong to claim that. But they won't come out and challenge the Republican base by saying so. So we are stuck in a position in which rank-and-file Republican politicians and lots and lots of voters believe that there was some sort of skullduggery in 2020. So that's one very corrosive set of myths, which then leads people to support unnecessary or damaging legislation from that side of the aisle, and which prevents the kind of national rallying behind, you know, let's move on and fight the next election on its own issues rather than whether the wrong president was inaugurated. So very damaging and very dangerous to have people believing in election fraud myths that weren't so. Then you've got the Democrats who, in some better world, might have been the grown-ups in the room, calmly correcting all of these things and putting forward a modest legislative agenda that would increase confidence in the system. Instead, you have President Biden, who has unfortunately been one of the guiltiest parties over on his side of the aisle, repeatedly saying of the Georgia legislation, and there was legislation in in quite a few other states, but everyone has agreed to use Georgia as kind of the stand-in, the the sample case, calling it a return to Jim Crow, demanding the all-star game not be played there. So let's look at the Georgia law. The Georgia law, in the first place, is being adopted in a state which has made all sorts of centrist sorts of political gestures for years. The you know Georgia has already, before it passed the law, it was well out front of many other states on the convenience measures. Uh, and the pandemic forced the issue to some extent in the long debates between generally Democrats liked more convenience measures like early voting, absentee voting, lockboxes, 
and many others. The pandemic kind of forced the issue. Uh, Georgia adopted lots of it, but like many states, foreseeing that elections will go back to a non-pandemic environment in which, once again, the volunteers are back on election day, and once again, you're relying on the trying to place more normal demands on local election staffs at the the counties and and cities. Georgia scaled back somewhat the number of early voting days and that sort of thing, and still leaving it not only much more liberal than it had been in the very recent past, but also much more liberal than in many northeastern states that, you know, like Delaware and New York and and states, states, you know, from from which the, you know, the the delegations, you know, got, got on the same high horse that Biden did. And so it's very weird. You know, people put enormous, they invest enormous symbolic Im- importance in the charge, for example, that it will be unlawful to bring a bottle of water to someone dying of thirst in a long voting line in a hot southern polling place. There is something biblical about the cruelty that seems to be involved until you see the actual letter of the law is may not distribute electioneer by which is meant distribute things of value in a line. And that New York, for example, has had essentially identical rules, totally uncontroversial for years. It's still possible to provide water in various ways. But again, it's it's a constant process by which a wide range of election changes, which in my view are within the range of honest disputes of opinion and in which we uh, lose a lot when we refuse to accept that there can be any decent motives behind changes, for example, that are meant to relieve uh, the pressure on local election administrators to put in many, many, many more days out in the tending machines than they had ever, ever been asked to do before. So we have a lot of accusations of voter suppression, and it's not as if it's totally baseless to suspect some Republicans of wanting lower turnout. Republicans used to learn at their mentors' knees that low turnout is good for Republicans because Republicans will, you know, traipse through the snow, you know, with the most boring candidates possible on the ballot. And they, you know, besides which they've all got cars that work in, in bad weather. And Democrats are more easily discouraged. So it was always the conventional wisdom up until a few years ago. Trump has changed everything. You know, it's, it's not a all clear that low turnout is good for Republicans. We just had a super, super high turnout election, which, by the way, ought to cast at least a teensy bit of doubt on the idea that we have unprecedented voter suppression. You know, why are we breaking these turnout records if it's un- unprecedented voter suppression? Nonetheless, below the top of the ticket, that super high turnout environment was really great for Republicans because the kinds of voters that they are appealing to are changing, and they are getting some of the more alienated people who are harder to motivate to get to the polls many times. So all of that are reasons why I try to get both sides to calm down and look at the evidence. I point to a study that was in the Quarterly Journal of Economics last year, and they looked at voter ID. Now, we haven't mentioned voter ID, but listeners know that it's been invested with this magical kind of power. You know, if a state has enacted voter ID and you're supposed to show ID at the polls, it is trying to suppress your vote. That's the idea from the Democratic side. And, And it's sort of just as totemic and magical what some Republicans expect of it, which is, oh, we can relax. We got voter ID in our state. Now we don't have to worry about, well, no, uh, sorry to break it to you, but the, it, 
production integrity issues are much more various than that and will not necessarily be solved. And what this, uh, what these economists found in the study was that comparing states that had and did not have voter ID, there was no evidence of voter suppression, including among minorities in the states that had voter ID laws. Whoops, you know, the whole democratic talking point out the window. They also found, however, that there was no evidence of greater voter fraud in states that had voter ID. You know, Republican talking point right out the second story window. COVID-19 presented uh, I, we would say a lot of challenges for election officials, but it also presented a lot of opportunities to make changes that would have been impossible otherwise. A lot of states have made it easier to vote. Some of those innovations brought about by a pandemic probably ought to stick around. Well, how, how do you evaluate the changes that came from COVID-19 and, and what, uh, what's beneficial to the integrity of the vote? COVID-19 stressed the system, and you did see, especially before uh, general election 2020, that you saw in the primary season, for example, some things go badly wrong with long lines and other problems. But it gave states the opportunity to experiment with things that they're not going to want to abandon in many cases because they are more convenient. And I know there is a bunch of conservatives out there who say convenience is overrated and that there is something so public-spirited about all trooping together and seeing each other at the polls, uh, and you can be sure that your neighbors will all be coming up that day, and, and it's like New England town meeting. Well, technology moves on, and just as people not only get more convenience, but also can get more security sometimes by uh, moving to better technology. So we ought to consider not only that uh, we have the kind of um, uh, modern in modern life, you have many perfectly legitimate reasons why people uh, like vote by mail, why in the states and countries that have moved toward non-in-person voting, uh, you often have a um, high degree of confidence in the results and the public wouldn't want to go back. So that should tell you something. It at the same time, people who are too afraid of introducing any computer element, and as I say, you know, paper trails, we realize are an excellent pre preventative of, of, of things going wrong, but we should not be afraid of the idea that um, technology will continue to change in ways that actually help auditing in many cases, help catch the skullduggery that you know, the, there were convictions or, or guilty pleas quite recently in Philadelphia, you know, of all places, Philadelphia, to have voter fraud. So voter fraud has not been completely stamped out, but, you know, it is great that the advance not only of American practice generally, but also of technology means that we have some confidence that we are catching it in a way that in the days of the old political machines in big cities through much of the 20th century, we were not catching nearly as much of it. If you follow uh, our friends at uh, the Institute for Free Speech and other people who are uh, closely follow the campaign finance space and uh, campaigns and elections, what is often characterized by Democrats as voting rights, voting rights, voting rights, the specific piece of legislation has a broad range of speech squelching provisions that prevent well-meaning groups of average Americans from engaging more directly in a freewheeling political process. 
it has been tremendously misleading how the term voting rights, which until recently was largely used for the specific question of whether the right to vote was being impaired based on race, it has is now the banner under which omnibus legislation that would do dozens of other things is pursued. And, it, and if you criticize it, you are, quote, against a voting rights bill, unquote. Now, in this bill are campaign finance and campaign limitations that run right into the First Amendment and a bunch of other things that really have nothing to do with voting rights as such. You also have areas we haven't talked about uh, redistricting and gerrymandering, but they are presenting a set of rules in here that are very that ought to be very controversial. They are prescribing to states standards for redistricting based on proportional representation type outcomes, which is not something that most states, liberal or conservative, choose to pursue on their own. And they are, uh, when you get down into the actual language of uh, the so-called Freedom to Vote Act, their standards on redistricting discourage things like compactness and following county and municipal lines, which have traditionally been considered desiderata of good districting, and which I also think are important to good districting, they actively discourage them. They prevent it from being used as a defense. They uh, uh, prioritize other things legally above things like compactness. In fact, compact or compactness never appears anywhere in this bill, which people you know, go out and say it's going to end gerrymandering. It's 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 going to give you a different kind of highly politically conscious districting, and they are, you know, they they, they are trying to run this through by knocking over the, the the filibuster when there has not really been any national chance to de- explore and debate what would the bill do. I mean, it's got tons of these things. Some of them put in only in the last couple of months, which would drastically overhaul American election law. Not only would it replace local option with federal prescription, but it would create tons of opportunities for lawyers to sue. No one has really worked out what the implications are. The the idea is pass it first in order to feel good, and then uh, we'll explain later what was in it. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.